As Christians who are blessed to live lives of peace and freedom, we must maintain a robust theology of persecution because we are not promised this liberty forever. When I was in Nepal years ago, I remember having to teach the parable of the vine dressers in Mark chapter 12, where the Lord talks about the master sending his servants and the servants were beaten and stripped and even killed by those that were working his vineyard. And I had to teach that to a bunch of pastors who were in fact being persecuted. And I had to teach them the words that Jesus taught us, which are to endure unto death, to die for Jesus if need be, and to rejoice when we face persecution. That's a hard thing to look men in the eyes that you know are going to have to go home and are looking to you as their spiritual authority and are perhaps going to have to endure suffering because of the things that you say. Although that's just the proximate cause. The ultimate cause is what the Lord said. But knowing that, I do not hesitate to call every Christian to faithfulness to Jesus, even and especially unto death. I would not hesitate to send somebody to be a missionary in a country where I know they might be killed. And I would not hesitate to insist that if the moment comes, I expect them to die. I expect them to die for Christ. Because that is exactly what the Lord has told us to do. There's no getting out of it. And if you think to yourself, well, I, if I was ever in that position, you better believe I would die for Christ. I would face that persecution well. I hope you would. But how you handle persecution today foreshadows how you will handle persecution tomorrow. The little tests that you face now will tell you how you would handle the big tests when they come. And we have an example here in the book of Revelation of a church that was doing it the right way. And they're going to serve as an example for us today. Let's read this whole section. That's only four verses. And then we'll come back and go slowly. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Back in verse 8, it says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. This is the shortest of Jesus' seven epistles in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. It opens the same way, writing to the angel of the church, and we've discussed last time what that might mean. And this time he's writing to the church in Smyrna. Smyrna was also in the Roman province of Asia, modern day Turkey, Asia Minor, it's sometimes called. Smyrna was 35 miles north of Ephesus, and it was also a port city. Smyrna was well known for its beauty. It was not, as most ancient cities, and in fact a lot of modern cities are, a haphazard arrangement that grew over time. It was a planned city. It had been destroyed several times and rebuilt several times. So every time it was rebuilt, they improved upon its design. And it was known throughout the, the empire as the crown of Asia. 
It was also associated with the phoenix, which if you're familiar with the phoenix, was a legendary bird that would die, and then it would be reborn in flames. It's a legend, it's not true. But for the, the Smyrnans, they took it upon themselves as a symbol because their, church, their city had, in fact, been destroyed and rebuilt several times for over thousands of years by Alexander the Great, among others. It had a reputation for always coming back. And the name Smyrna, you can actually hear it in the name, is related to the word for myrrh, which was a perfume. It was one of the gifts that the wise men brought to Jesus when he was born. And it was used for perfume. It was also used to embalm bodies, which may be significant to the way Jesus talks to them. Smyrna was also a center in this region for the worship of Rome. This wasn't just veneration and patriotism of your country. There would be temples to the goddess Roma, which was the embodiment, the idolatrous embodiment of the empire. And there was a worship center there in Smyrna. They also were famous for worship of the emperor. You know, there are many throughout history that have claimed to be devoted to their kings and devoted to their generals, but they truly worshiped their emperors as gods. They had idols, they had incense, and all the rest of it. And there was a church in this city. We do not know when it was planted. The book of Acts doesn't describe it. We know in Acts chapter 19 that Paul was in Ephesus, which was only 35 miles away from, Ephesus, uh, from Smyrna. And Paul was there for three years, so it stands to reason Paul would have gone out and perhaps planted other churches. We don't read about, for example, the churches of Hierapolis being founded, but there certainly was one there. Today, the city is known as Izmir, which is, you can hear, it's still kind of like Smyrna, Izmir. Uh, it was conquered by the Ottomans, the Muslims, in 1426. And Turkey is, of course, a Muslim nation today. But there is still a large Christian population in Smyrna, which is not the case with all of these churches. They still have a lampstand shining in Smyrna. And Jesus, as the author, identifies himself as the first and the last, and then refers to his resurrection. Which you can see why Jesus might want to lean into those titles if this is a city that prided itself on being destroyed and coming back like the phoenix. In fact, Clement, in his first epistle, who was a, a church father, he described the phoenix as being properly foreshadowing Jesus, and that all those legends were put to prepare people for the gospel, whether or not you think that's the case, is irrelevant. That's what they thought back then. So perhaps this is what Jesus is getting at. He calls himself the first and the last. This is a reference to an Old Testament description of God. Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Isaiah 48, 12, listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called, I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. This is what John often does, although this is Jesus uh, writing through John, taking Old Testament descriptions of God and attributing them to Jesus. Men like Arius, who were heretics in the first years of the church, would take phrases like this, the firstborn of creation, or the first and the last, and say, see, what this means is the first created thing was Jesus, and then he created everything else. God is above all that, but Jesus himself is not exactly God, because he was first, although God is outside of time. He's not even first. But that fails to take into account how the Bible uses that phrase. 
The Lord in Isaiah says, I am the first and the last in order to assert his deity, his status as the I am, the aseity of God. Jesus is given that same title here. So to call someone the first and the last is a divine title shared within the Trinity. Revelation ascribes it to Jesus here. It did back in chapter 1, and it will again in chapter 22, verse 13. You cannot get out of the fact that the Bible, especially the New Testament, ascribes deity to the Lord Jesus. For a city which prized itself on rising up out of the ashes, Christ comes in and says, I am the risen one. I'm the first and the last. And for a church, which as we will see, has been suffering and dying, this reminder is encouraging that our Lord has passed through death and come through the other side. Look at this, verses 9 and 10. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. You could translate that, verse 10, perhaps literally, stop being afraid of what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. We're going to spend most of our time on these two verses. We're going to look at four different aspects of this and how it relates to our understanding of persecution and suffering as Christians. And the first piece we're going to look at, if you're taking notes, is the divine perspective on persecution. Jesus says, as he always does in these letters, he says in verse 9, I know. And usually he jumps in and says, I know your works. But this time it's different. He says, I know your tribulation, your affliction, your suffering. Thlipsis is the Greek word there. And what is unique about this letter, Smyrna is one of only two churches in these letters that are not given a correction by Jesus. Philadelphia would be the other one. But we saw how Ephesus had all these great works, but they had left their first love. Smyrna, there's no but. They're just commended by Christ. And you can see they were enduring persecution. So was the church in Ephesus, and they were also bearing up under persecution. But this is the, the focus of this letter. They were enduring, it says, poverty, but you are rich. This is not telling them to buck up, you've got plenty of money. He's telling them, you have spiritual riches. You have treasure in heaven, so don't bother about your poverty. This is, is by many, and I think this is probably right, asserting that there have been attacks, perhaps on the property of these Christians, what we might call uh, pogroms today, where there was these concerted efforts to destroy the property of the Christians because they knew they had no legal recourse to get it back. They were being slandered. That word is actually blasphemia, where we get the word blasphemy being slandered, they were thrown into prison, and even they were facing death. I've talked about this before, and we will hit it in more detail another day. There are some that view these seven epistles as symbolic and prophetic of the seven ages of the church. I've expressed that I like this view. I think it's got a lot to say for it, but I, I, I can't stand on it and say it's, it's for sure. But those that do stand on this say that this church is representative of the post-apostolic age through Constantine, when the church was no longer persecuted. So this would have been after the death of the last apostle, through the persecutions of Marcus Aurelius, the persecutions of Diocletian. You know, it's, it's fascinating to me how many Christians really like the ideas of Mar Marcus Aurelius, the Stoic, that you know that that guy 
slaughtered Christians, don't you? He had made a concerted effort to get rid of the Christian influence in the empire. In any case, there was persecution that lasted for hundreds of years, and it continues around all the world. And this is not a surprise. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 12 through 13, and hopefully if you were told something different, you'll be corrected here. Paul said, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Hey, is that you? Raise your hand if you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Awesome. Here's your daily bread promise of the day. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So much for that post-millennial idea of the end of the world. That things are just going to improve and get better until the end and then Jesus will return. It's the opposite of what the Bible tells us. Christians share in Christ's suffering through persecution. That when we face opposition, violence, even death, because of Christ, and Peter makes very clear, if it's not for Christ, it's not persecution. He's like, if you did something, like you stole something, and you go to prison, that's not persecution. That's just justice. But we share in Christ's suffering through persecution. 2 Corinthians 1.5 says that as we share in his suffering, we share in his comfort. Philippians 3 verse 10, Paul says, I've given up everything so that I might share in Christ's suffering and know him. 1 Peter 4.13 talks about sharing in Christ's suffering. That when we suffer for Christ, it's like we're imitating Christ. Isn't that what we want to be? To be more like Jesus? Well, the New Testament extends that very much to suffering like Jesus did. Look at his perspective on suffering here. He says, hey, don't be afraid. You're rich. Keep going. Die if you need to. He's not telling them, oh, this is a disaster. We've got to fix this. This is just going to be the lot of the Christian. Persecution for a believer is not tragic. It is in one sense. Do you follow me? It's tragic that people would oppose the gospel and we grieve when we lose things and we lose people. But ultimately, it's glorious. And the American church needs to hear this. Maybe you do. Suffering for Christ is not a sign of failure. And we say, well, I know that, but let me lay this out a little bit further. If you believe that the church's destiny and goal is to completely transform the culture everywhere they go, that's a very common view. And there's not, there's, I mean, again, a little truth to that. But if you believe our goal is to transform the culture and now we're being persecuted, the church has failed. But that's not the case. We're not set out to transform culture. We're set out to save souls. And then those people living in a culture will eventually make it better, right? But it's the Lord that raises up and tears down nations. It has nothing to do with us. And when persecution comes, it's not a sign that we're doing something wrong. Many people do that. They'll say, well, the recent polls show that 70% of people dislike Christians and think they ought to be silenced. What are we doing wrong? Maybe nothing. Maybe you're doing something exactly right. And the church has finally been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. They were impoverished, your poverty. But Jesus said they were rich. Just like, what's the first beatitude Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3? Blessed are the poor. And Matthew says poor in spirit. But blessed are the poor. Blessed when you don't got a lot of stuff weighing you down. Because you can recognize better your poverty of spirit and your need for the Lord Jesus Christ. And the final beatitude is blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. 
Smyrna at this time was perhaps, we don't know for sure, but the timeline seems to fit, was led or at least attended by a man named Polycarp, who you maybe know that name, in 155 BC would become a faithful martyr in his old, old age. So John penning this letter on behalf of Christ is being, these words are coming to a man in this church who would have been younger at this time, but in his old age would be called to make the ultimate sacrifice in obedience to these words. You know, over the last few years, it's kind of died down now, although there's still plenty to be concerned about. When churches were being threatened with loss of building space, with rest, pastors were being arrested for meeting because of COVID, or when we were at least being reviled in the news, I'll never forget, it really hit home to me that there was a church that was burned down in Mississippi and spray painted on the rubble that said, bet you stay home now. Now, we hear that, and that was tragic, that was horrible. I mean, this is, this is I'm part of me, my reaction to that is as an American, like, this is my home. This is the land of the free. What are we doing, right? But Christ approved of those churches that went through that. He says, there you go. That's what I'm talking about. And the, the biblical perspective on that, rather than saying this is the biggest failure of a generation America's ever seen, how about the Lord saying, finally, a generation that is worthy to suffer for my name. That's the complete inversion of the way we think about things, isn't it? But it's how Jesus does. And our response to persecution yeah, if you've got recourse to put a stop to it, let's do that. Paul escaped Damascus in a basket. He wasn't a, an idiot about it. But our proper response is to rejoice. Hey, they're trying to shut us down. Good luck. You, you can't shut the church down. You go underground. They can't stop it because it's not an institution. They say, well, we'll take your buildings away. Little do they know that every week we gather together and say, this building ain't the church. It's just where the church gathers. Yeah, yeah. You've got to change the way you view persecution, Christian, as something, number one, that is expected, that this is going to happen in one degree or another. I mean, it can, it can range from something violent and terrible all the way to your boss calling you in and saying, everybody in the office is signing this pledge to stand up for gay rights and trans rights, and you know, just sign it, it's just, just boilerplate. Uh, no, I won't do that. Oh, come on, please don't do this to me. I, I'll have to fire you. I'll have to write you up. You might get fired. Sorry, I won't do that. I'm standing on the word of God. Like, listen, man, I, I agree with you, but I have to do this. Sorry. That's pretty low-level persecution, right? You can, there's jobs everywhere. But you, how you handle those small ones will determine how you're going to handle the big ones. So that's the divine perspective on persecution, and I must go faster. Let's look at this. The roots of persecution, specifically the religious roots of persecution. Who was... Who was stirring this up in Smyrna? Because at this point, if you know your history, Rome was more or less indifferent to the church. Things were starting to heat up. So what was the big deal? We see this. We see this right here. The slander, the blasphemy of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The persecution in Smyrna seems to have been instigated by the Jews, which you read the book of Acts, that happened over and over again to Paul. Now, this is not saying that they were fake Jews, as in they were not actually Jews. They just took on the name. There was no social credit to be had at that point for this. These were Jews who had rejected the gospel, and they're according, then according to Jesus, Paul, and John the Baptist, were not legitimate sons of Abraham. Romans 2, 28 and 29 talks about that if you want to go read it. This is not eliminating the category of Jew and Gentile as if, well, it's only those that are saved are, are the real Jews. Jesus is making a point here. 
Romans 11.28 tells us, and I have to say this, let me just pause and explain what I mean by this. You know, rightly so, our culture is hypersensitive to anti-Semitism and to hatred of the Jews. Because in living memory, the Holocaust happened. And there's all kinds of terrible things. Okay, yeah, fine. However, we cannot let our Christian love for Israel Love for the Jews, excitement at seeing the Jews return to their land, thoughts of the possibilities of the temple being rebuilt. We cannot let that push us to a place where we assert anything other than the fact that a Jew without Jesus is as lost as anybody else. And there are those that will say that's anti-Semitic, even in the church. Well, they're all going to be saved. No, they won't. The only way to salvation is through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said in Romans eleven twenty eight, 28, speaking of the Jews, and Paul himself was one, so was John, so was Jesus. People, did everybody like to try to get you with that? Well, you know, Jesus was a Jew. Ha ha! Yeah, we knew that. Well, you know, Jesus wasn't blonde and blue-eyed and white, right? Like, I'm going to go, what? I'm done with this religion now. It's like, it's like, you just found that out, man? Where you been? In any case, Romans eleven twenty eight, Paul says of the Jews, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. God's not done with Israel, but in the meantime, the Bible classifies the Jews as enemies of the church. Do we love them? Are we desperate to see them saved? Yes, we are, but we cannot forget that. They're even... I'm really getting off on a rabbit trail here, but there are even those that are like, well, really what we ought to be doing is getting some rabbis in to tell us what the, the traditions of the Jews tell us about how to properly interpret this Old Testament. Do you not know that the, all these traditions that are written now were specifically developed to deny Jesus Christ as the Messiah? And didn't Jesus show up and his whole ministry was telling them, you're wrong for asserting the traditions of men as the doctrines of God? There are Jews in this room who have found Jesus Christ. So we're not opposed and, and hateful of that. But we've got to be realistic and we cannot be caught up in this thing where we forget they need their Messiah and without him they are as lost as any pagan or atheist. And in fact, there are still places even in Israel today where Christians face persecution because of the Jews. Until their hearts are restored, they are blind to their Messiah and a danger to the church. Polycarp's martyrdom was instigated by tattletale Jews that brought the news to the officials that he refused to burn incense to Caesar. Did they burn incense to Caesar? No, because they were protected. They were a protected religious class. They didn't have to. Christians were not. And the Jews, after the destruction of Jerusalem, had separated themselves. They are not a sect of Judaism. They're their own thing. So in Smyrna, they went to their official and say, he doesn't burn incense to Caesar. What drives a person to persecute a Christian? There's a lot of reasons. Sometimes it's not as important to them as it is to us. But religion is one of them. Because the gospel is divisive. Because we call out every other belief as false and demand complete obedience and subjection, in fact, death to oneself so that we may serve Jesus Christ. What does today's religion look like? Well, we are a rather corporatized, well-fed, rich people. So we don't like formalized religion very much, but that in itself has become our religion. 
The American religion of the day is lots of things. I've got a few characteristics here. First of all, it's both pseudo-scientific and pseudo-spiritual. Everybody believes in science, even if they don't know anything about science. They know a few buzzwords that they hold on to, and the minute it stops serving what they want to say, they drop it, right? We, we've seen this in lots of different cases. It's also pseudo-spiritual, because any bit of religious bit you can take and add to yourself, hey, it's all good, bring it in. Never mind the fact that people that actually believe those things are like, uh, you can't do that. Well, I'm just spiritual, I'm not religious. No, you, you've got a, like a buffet religion that you're trying to do here. It's individualistic. It's about me, it's about my truth, it's about my story, it's about what I want. It's syncretistic. There is no one way. Everything's good. We can bring it all together. You know who says things like that? People that have no experience with actual religion, in my experience. It's political. Our religion twists and changes and morphs according to what is politically expedient at the time. To that end, it's also protean, meaning it will change in an instant. There is no fixed standard of what's good and what's right. People want to talk, I mean, I'll use this example because it's so obvious, about, you know, they'll march in the streets and yell and scream and break things and fire people because of these transgender issues. Five years ago, nobody thought about that or cared about that or, or even had such strong opinions. It changed that fast to now you are, you're not just behind the times, you're evil because that's what our world does. It just changes so fast, you can't keep up with it. It's amoral. There really is no morality except what makes sense to you. And because of all those things, today's religion is incredibly fragile. You push on it like this and it falls apart. Have you noticed? Easiest thing in the world to find a good apologist or a good evangelist or even just a good educated person poking holes in all this stuff. But do people sit there and say, oh, you know, that's an interesting point. No, they yell, they walk away, they cry because it's fragile. Therefore, it is absolutely hostile to something as intense as the gospel, as insistent as the gospel. Even we see in churches, they're trying to adapt the book according to the ways of the time. Especially in some of these higher, uh, high church uh, denominations. You see that the pastors don't have degrees in biblical studies and theology. They have degrees in social activism or women's studies or any number of different things. Economics. Because for them, the church is just one more arm of something else they're trying to accomplish. And when the Bible strides forth to tear down the idols of culture, we should expect resistance. They don't like it. They don't want it. Even those that claim to be on our team. They're on our team now. They weren't 20 years ago, and they won't be 20 from now. But there's a deeper root than that, and this is the third thing. We're going to call this satanic permission for persecution. Their blasphemy of these Jews, the blasphemia, the slander, was not against the church, but it was really against the Lord. So Jesus had prophesied, there will be some that claim to be doing the work of God when they drag you into the synagogues and beat you and kill you. Paul had been one of them. So were these here. But in reality, like Jesus said in John 8, 44, your father's not Abraham. Your father is the devil. Because if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing Abraham's works. But because you're doing the devil's work, persecuting my church... The devil's your father. And that is ultimately where persecution comes from. Do you see it? They're a synagogue of Satan. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Persecution ultimately comes from the devil. And we believe in the devil, by the way. 
It's, it's too serious for us to be embarrassed to say that. We believe in the devil and his angels, just like we believe in the Lord and his angels. If you don't believe those things, then you don't believe the Bible, because there it is, right in front of you. Smyrna was promised that there would be 10 days of testing. There are some that say, oh, is this 10 literal days? Is this you know, describing a short period, like a symbolic period? I don't see any reason why it couldn't have just been 10 days. But there are some that disagree with me. Which would involve prison. Now, prison in the Roman Empire was different than the way we do prison. We send people to prison for long-term sentences because we don't do hard labor, we don't do execution, we don't do some of those harder things. So we send people to prison. In those days, prison was basically just a holding area. We're not going to keep you here. We're going to keep you here until we decide what to do with you. It would lead up to trial, to execution, to being made part of the gladi gladiatorial games. There's one author I read who was convinced that that's exactly what this is talking about, that these Smyrna Christians were going to be killed in the arena. But it would involve prison, most likely leading to their trial, and he said unto death, so their execution as well. People say, oh, 10 days is too short for something to happen. No, it's not. No, it's not. If, one of the, if the synagogue of Satan is trying to get something through and they get one of their complaints through, you can have a really intense 10 days that can result in the death of a lot of Christians. When terrible things afflict the church, we cannot forget what Ephesians 6.12 tells us, that our adversary is not flesh and blood. It's not even the synagogue of Satan, but it's the principalities and powers, the God of this age, the devil. The devil hates God. He hates Christ. He hates the church. He hates the Jews. And he seeks to destroy all of it. And he is the one that inspires people to their worst tendencies. We love to see the good in people. Satan doesn't see any of that. And he gets his satisfaction out of stirring up the worst parts of people. You've experienced that in your own life. But here's the thing. He says, 10 days that you may be tested. There is a limit placed on what Satan can do. We see this most clearly in the book of Job. That God in his justice and wisdom will permit Satan to afflict his people. But he absolutely sets the parameters of what may and may not be done. In Job 1, verse 12, Satan is asking permission to afflict Job. The Lord said to him, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So you can touch his family. You can touch his possessions. You cannot touch him. But then in Job 2, verse 6, he comes back again. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand. Only spare his life. Gives him a little more leash. Right? You can afflict his body. You can make him sick, but you cannot kill him. And it seems in the case of Smyrna, God had told Satan, you can afflict the church for 10 days. And whatever you can accomplish in those 10 days, you can accomplish. But after that, you're done. God holds the leash on Satan. 2 Thessalonians 2.6 says that there is a restrainer on the work of evil. He said the Antichrist is constantly trying to arise, but he can't because God is restraining him. And until the restrainer is removed, there will be no Antichrist. Take comfort in that, by the way. When you're watching stuff online that spooks you and scares you, the Lord's got it. He's got him. And in fact, the biggest danger of the, of the tribulation period is going to be God is going to let that restraint go. But Jesus warns them that death is coming. And he doesn't say, I'll get you out of this. He insists that they die well. Without faltering. They're going to drag you, and some of you are going to come out of that prison, and it's going to be, renounce me or die. Don't be afraid. Be faithful unto death. 
The Bible tells the Christians that we are obligated to die for Christ. It's not optional. There was a big, one of the biggest debates, and even led to a schism in the early church, was over this very issue. A big persecution blows through the church. A bunch of people renounced Jesus. A bunch of people died and didn't. Persecution ends. All those that renounced Jesus wanted to come back. What do we do with them? Do we let them back or don't we? It was a major divide in the early church. There are some saying, grace, we got to let them back. Others who were saying, this is the ultimate test of a Christian and they failed. How can we let them back? The issues we don't so much have to worry about today. But the Lord insists that they die well. At the very least, they were disobedient. And they ought to have been fearful of their souls. Polycarp was dragged before the magistrates and badgered and threatened and saying, you either revile Christ and hail Caesar, or I'm going to send you to the wild beasts in the arena. And Polycarp said, I have served my Lord Jesus for 86 years, and he has not done me anything wrong. How can I now turn on him at the end of my life? That's faithfulness unto death. That's faithfulness. What? This isn't a question, Your Honor. I'm not doing this. I refuse. And, he, and you read the story, this guy's like, you're an old man. I don't want to send an old man to die. That's sometimes how the, Lord, the devil gets us. He makes it sound so reasonable and nice, right? Everybody's doing it. It doesn't have to mean it. I don't need you to mean it in your heart. Just take the incense, blow it on the altar, and say, hail Caesar. And then you can be gone. You can go home. I won't do it. I won't say Caesar is Lord because there is only one Lord and that's my Lord Jesus Christ. And he died for me. So how can I accept the benefits of his death for me if I refuse to give the same to him? He refused and he was burned alive and slain in the arena in front of a cheering, roaring crowd. We are told to not fear that kind of suffering. You read the letters of Ignatius. Ignatius was being dragged from one end of the empire to Rome to face death and persecution. And his letters are like, I'm so excited I could barely contain myself. Because he's like, I'm going to face the final test, which is, am I willing to die for Jesus? And I know that I'm ready so that when I die for Jesus, it's going to be me and the Lord in heaven forever. He says, if they put me in front of a lion and the lion proves tame, I'm going to run up and grab it by the mane and yank it until it bites my head off. <laughs> That's, that's the opposite of fear, man. That's enthusiasm. That's like, if I can die with Christ, then I can know that I'm in Christ. Do not fear. Have you already determined in your mind that you will die for Jesus? That if someone walked through that door with a, with a rifle in their hand and demanded that you renounce Christ, would you just put a smile on your face and say, I guess this is the day we see Jesus. If you've not made that determination already, Christian, you need to. Because it might be today. You don't know. You don't know how long. And you don't know. Laws move fast, don't they? Invasions happen quickly. All manner of things can happen. You've got to be ready now when the stakes are low so that when the stakes are high, you're like, I've already made this decision. But here's the last, the fourth point, the blessed hope that Jesus gave them. First, he says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He said, I'm going to test you. And some of y'all are saying, what kind of test is that? That the only way you pass the test is by dying. It's a test that is completed in heaven. 
If you don't believe in heaven, if you don't believe in the afterlife, if you don't believe in Jesus and the, and the Lord, then that test is meaningless to you. If Christianity is only for this life, then why in the world would you die for it? I can say all kinds of things publicly and go home and live out Jesus' mandates myself. But Jesus doesn't give us that option. He says, you're not living for this day, you're living for that day. With a capital D. And like Jesus, when he died on the cross, Satan's attacks on us only lead to our good. Just like the cross ended up being the biggest blunder that Satan ever committed. So for you, if you die in Christ faithfully unto death, you're going to pass into the next life and receive a crown. And Satan's going to be sitting there gnashing his teeth. The first martyr in Acts chapter 7 was a man named Stephen. And it's very interesting to me that his name is Stephen because that comes from the word Stephanos, which is that word for crown that he uses right here. Faithful unto death, I'll give you the crown of life. Don't think, there's two words for crown in Greek. There's diadem, which is a crown of authority and rule, right? I'm in charge. The Stephanos is a laurel. You've seen the, the statues of Caesar. He's got like the wreath around his head, right? Maybe little Caesars, you've seen it. But this is this, you know, winning laurels. You've heard of that. A laurel wreath was given to the victors at the games, the Olympic games, the Isthmian games, the Smyrna games, whatever they were, or to conquering military heroes. When they came home, they received a laurel. So I'm going to give you a crown because you will have won. You'll have conquered. You'll have finished. You'll have made it to the end. And that crown is life. You're going to die, but the crown is eternal life. Satan desires your destruction. He doesn't care about ruining your life. He wants you dead forever in hell. So he'll tempt you and scare you with death. But we don't have to be afraid of death anymore. That's the blessed hope. A life after death that Satan cannot touch. Paul says in Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. If we forget that, then your life will become too precious. I can't lose my life. What if I die? What if I die? Well, what if you die? That's all the years that the Lord had, had laid out for you, I guess. It's enough. What about my, my wife? My children? I mean, I'm ready to die for Jesus. It's not fair for them. What better thing can a father, husband, mother, child do than to encourage those that are under their responsibility to die faithfully for Jesus Christ? You think you'll hear well done if you die well. If you can teach your children and your family to die well, you'll get an extra well done. Peter's wife was crucified in front of him before they crucified him. And the story tells us that Peter was calling out to her the whole time, don't give in. Don't renounce our Lord. Keep going. You're almost there. You're almost done. Like somebody cheering on somebody at the finish line who's about to stumble and fall. Keep going. Don't stop. You're almost there. If your life is too precious, though, you'll renounce Christ to save it. And he who desires to save his life will lose it. What are you unwilling to lose? That's where the hammer is going to fall in your life. I don't care if I die. All right, but what about if your children? Oh, I don't know if I can handle that. Well, that's where the hammer is going to come. Well, what about losing all your stuff, losing your position? I'll die for Christ, but I don't know if I can live in poverty like the Smyrnans were. That's where the hammer will come. 
The devil has learned he does not need to afflict Christians as long as he can entertain them to death. They become so addicted to all their little trinkets that they can't think, bear the thought of giving up one of them. But once you have let Jesus teach you to be poor in spirit, then there's nothing else that can hold you. Those things mean nothing. And your soul will grow. Your soul will grow stronger because it's not tied to stuff. Day by day, Christian, you've got to die to yourself. Tell yourself no every single day for the sake of Christ so that nothing can hold you except the love of Jesus. The story goes that when Polycarp died, his burning flesh smelled of incense, smelled of myrrh, which is where the city of Smyrna got its name. And the guard that slew him was converted and joined the church. Jesus won the world through death. And you can win the world through your death. By your life lived well until you die surrounded by your friends and family with smiles on their faces. Or through violent, wicked persecution. However the Lord determines for you to end your life, end it well. Verse 11, we come to the end. He who has an ear, that's most of you, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So once again, this message is not just for Smyrna. It's for all the churches throughout history and throughout the world. Death comes for everybody, but those who die in Christ will not face the second death. What is that? Well, you have to turn to the end of this book with me, to Re Revelation chapter 20. And we're going to read about what that is, the second death. Don't fear the first death. Fear the second one. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. This comes after the return of Christ, after the millennial reign of Jesus, at the very end of the world. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Be warned. Our Lord is the one who went through great suffering and death and came out the other side. He is the one who died and lives again. The only way to survive the second death is through his intervention. And the way that you receive his intervention is by living for him and ultimately dying for him with faithfulness. You may never face a gun to the head for Jesus Christ, but are you willing to suffer otherwise for him? Are you at least willing to be inconvenienced for Jesus? Are you even willing to be ostracized and left out of stuff for Jesus? Are you willing to be insulted and reviled and reproached by the world for Jesus? Christianity is not a comfortable religion. Initially, it's a renunciation of your life. And throughout your life, it's the eventual slow loss of all things until it's just Jesus. And at the end, it's dying with Christ as he did in order to share in his resurrection. 
Romans 6, 5 says, if we have been crucified with Christ, we will also be raised with Christ. Sitting in the congregation that heard that letter was a man called Polycarp. He heard it. He listened to it. And he went home to a reward. Can you imagine? And we're still sharing his testimony today. How many martyrs since then have thought of him and his willingness to go through it all and been faithful to the end? Will you commit today to die a little more every moment until the day of your own death arrives? We are living in troubling times when the rhetoric and the vitriol against the church is increasing. I don't think that's any secret. I see a similar and parallel danger to a bunch of people that are not believers taking up the cause of the defense of the church and the scriptures, and it will be dangerous in their hands. And the time will come when there will be a violent separation there too. <laughs> Don't be deceived by that. They're talking about the Bible, but do they know Christ? Immorality is increasing. Perversion is increasing. Apostasy within the churches is increasing. Would it be so hard to envision real persecution in our lifetime? I mean, like the real Smyrna deal here. You cannot wait until the guillotines come out, Christian. You've got to stand now and give up nothing to the world so that when the moment comes, you say, I've been ready for this since the day I gave my life to Jesus. I don't mean standing on the right team. Well, I'm going I'm to stand. I'm going to stand with the people that are opposing all this wickedness and perversion. But if they're not under Christ, if they're not filled with the Holy Spirit, if they're not venerating the word of God and bowing the knee to the gospel, they're going to be your enemy just as quickly. I mean to stand with Christ alone against everybody else. Do not love the world or the things in the world, John wrote. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Why live your life for something that will pass away? You young folks in the room, it's, you probably already noticed how fast trends move. You look at your parents and they, oh, how are they so behind? How do they not get any of this stuff? Even those of us that are not so old, but we've moved past that adolescent stage of life, like, man, it's like I don't even recognize it anymore. It moves so fast. It changes every day. So why live your life for that? Why commit yourself to something that is so fleeting, you're going to be laughing about it in five years? Break free and learn how to suffer. There is but one task assigned to man, and that is to die well. Fail in that regard, and you'll face a second death, this time of hellfire. But succeed. Be faithful unto death. Die in the arms of Christ, despising the rack or the rope or the ridicule that Satan throws your way, and you will enter into heaven with a crown on your head, just as Jesus did. 